All right, if you'll turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Timothy 6, we're continuing our study of the pastoral epistles, um, letters that Paul wrote to Timothy and Titus, by today finishing 1 Timothy. So while you turn there to 1 Timothy 6, let me briefly summarize uh, what we've done um, in the past weeks in studying chapters 1 through 5. So if you'll remember way back uh, in January, the letter opened um, with a warning to Timothy about false teachers who claim to be teachers of the law, but who really, uh, Paul says, don't understand it and don't apply it to themselves. The aim of their different doctrine, which is what Paul called it, is to promote speculations rather than stewardship of faith. In contrast, the true aim of the Christian charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And this led to the first of the trustworthy sayings that Paul presents in the pastoral epistles, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I'm the foremost. Having a sense of oneself being a great sinner who has received great mercy allows us to testify personally to that mercy that God has done for us. Chapter 2 focused on the topic of prayer, um, emphasizing that our prayer should reflect the nature of the gospel message, which is for all people, both the great and the small, Jew and Gentile. He also addressed, again, this contentiousness, pride, and lack of submission that can afflict churches from inside, um, particularly as people strive for costly, visible status rather than, than the pursuit of godliness. In chapter 3, the, the uh, focus was placed on qualifications needed to be an officer in the church, to be an overseer or deacon. Um, and we talked about how those qualifications um, emphasize the presence of a character and a reputation, and some, a reputation and a character that we should all aspire. Chapter 4 turned again to teachers who departed from the faith. Um, by their pursuit of false doctrines and practices. Um, and then that chapter 4, the emphasis was they were calling good things that God had created um, evil and encouraging people to shun them. Um, in response, the church should set its hope on the living God by training itself in scriptural godliness, being devoted to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. And this emphasis on training oneself and godliness through the study of God's word. In chapter 5 and uh, in the beginning part of chapter 6, Paul gave uh, Timothy instructions and procedures about how to care for certain types of people in the church. Elderly, widows, pastors, slaves. These categories of individuals um, demonstrate uh, how the church um, cuts across socioeconomic lines that unites people into a not just a community but into a family um, and a family shaped by love as Christ said in the gospel of John by this all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another so in this final chapter as we turn to the latter part of chapter 6 um, there we see Paul once again warning Timothy about these teachers who are presenting a different doctrine. Um, and he gives them a final exhortation to, to um, continue to pursue godliness. And, and one of the kind of particular themes that we'll see today running through both these sections, both the warning against false teachers and, um, and the instructions to Timothy about pursuit of godliness, um, is focused on our material possessions this question of riches, um, that the desire for and our use of material possessions is an indicator of our spiritual state and the degree of our commitment to the gospel message. And so, you know, one of the questions is, where do we place our desires? Um, do we place them on the things or on the God who gives those things? So with that as an introduction, let me read for us um, chapter 6. I'll go ahead and read verses 1 and 2, even though we covered those last week. So we'll really be starting um, with the latter part of verse 2 through the end of the chapter. 
Let all those who are under a yoke as slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Now there is great gain and godliness with contentment, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you are called and about which you made the good confession and the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and to Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no other has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irrev irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. All right, so Paul um, brings this letter uh, to Timothy to close with a third warning about those who teach this, as he calls it in this chapter, and as he called it in chapter one, a different doctrine or an other doctrine. So to start, what does chapter six uh, emphasize about these false teachers? Um, and as we think about, again, uh, one of the kind of questions I've been asking throughout this is how do we discern between false doctrine and true doctrine. So what characterizes the false teaching as Paul describes it here in chapter 6 of 1 Timothy? You are all an hour behind, right? <laughs> Spring forward. <laughs> Okay, so it's this affirmation of the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. And, and notice there, he's not just saying Jesus, but he's giving you know, these indicators, you know, the, these titles. He's our Lord, you know, indicating this degree of, of sovereignty and authority over us. He's also, he's not just Jesus, the man. He's also Christ. He's our, our Messiah and Savior. And, you know, as we think about, you know, um, what these teachers are doing, they're going against both the authority um, and the, the salvation that, uh, 
Christ provides by going against his words. And as we noticed last week, um, one of the things that distinguish um, part of Timothy's instructions in chapter 5 is he's quoting from Jesus alongside the Old Testament. So he is clearly equating um, Jesus' words at an early date in the church's life um, as scripture. And so to go against the words of, of Christ is to go against God's revealed word. Okay, good. So they're, they're not just uh, uh, preaching something different. They're actually contradicting um, the things that, that Jesus taught. Um, good. What else uh, characterizes these false teachers? So they're going against sound, the sound teaching of Christ. Yeah, Ron. Yeah, this unhealthy interest. And notice the, you know, I, I love how it, it goes into, um, you know, what's produced by this. And one of the things we have to wrestle with um, in this chapter is he's encouraging Timothy to fight the good fight and to combat this different doctrine. You know, he's he, so... Clearly, um, there's some level of dispute that is necessary part of the church's life to, to repudiate false doctrine. So he's not talking, when he's talking about these guys, he's, he's not talking about, um, you know, or trying to distinguish what's repudiating false doctrine and what's, um, you know, uh, craving for controversy and quarrels over words. And, and he goes into the kind of fruit of what's produced by these quarrels. Rather than leading people into truth to the scripture, you know, look at the, what, what these quarrels um, do. They produce envy. So this kind of jealousy. Um, so, you know, it's, it's striving to, um, to, to win the argument. Um, you know, uh, and you know how that can often be. Like sometimes you, you're in a discussion with somebody and you just want to be the person in the right and you'll do whatever it takes. <laughs> um, not caring about what it does to the other person to win your point. Um, so that kind of, which then produces envy and jealousy, um, uh, dissension, um, slander. And the idea uh, here is, of dissension is, is insult, um, has, it has that kind of, the, the word translated dissension has that kind of character of, um, it, it's, it's, it's causing a, yeah, a, a divide by insulting the other person. It's that kind of dissension. Um, it's slandering people. Um, it's um, creating evil suspicion, this almost kind of like scenario of paranoia where you're reading other people's words and actions and attributing motives to them, um, you know, these kind of suspicious motives. And again, I, I think we've been in context where we can kind of do like that. Like, I think I've mentioned I'm kind of in a toxic work climate right now <laughs> between the faculty and the administration. So everything the administration does my fellow faculty members are like reading like, you know, 20 pages into two words. And I'm like, uh, maybe they just mean what they say by the two words. <laughs> but that kind of, you know, evil suspicion. Right? Um, and, and then just constant friction. So rather than producing peace, um, as we saw in chapter one, um, producing this healthy attitude of, of you know, all people having this humble understanding of themselves as sinners in need of Christ. Um, instead, it's producing this kind of um, hierarchy where some people are putting themselves over other people and trying to win arguments and demonstrate their personal superiority rather than promoting, um, again, to use the language of chapter 5, a healthy family existence where brothers and sisters, fathers and mothers are all um, caring for one another, all seeking to promote the, the peace and godliness of one another. Good, what else? 
um, do you note about these false teachers? So they're contradicting the words of Jesus. Um, they're um, interested, more interested in these kind of quarrels over words, um, you know, a craving for controversy. Um, I like the, the ESDs, they're trying to capture some of the, the alliteration in the original. Um, yeah, that craving for controversy, I think, is a good way to express it. Um, other things that characterize these false teachers? Yeah, so this desire for gain. You know, again, why, why are they interested in, um, in putting themselves forward as teachers? Um, and part of that motivation as putting themselves forward for teachers, as we saw earlier, was this kind of self-advancement, this kind of boastful pride to, to um, make themselves um, seem superior to one another. But here, Paul focuses on this desire for gain, um, to use godliness as a means of gain. And I love how Paul, you know, does, now there is great gain in godliness, <laughs> but the point of the pursuit of godliness is not financial, <laughs> um, you know, that they're, and again, this is something I think um, our past experience of, uh, well, maybe not all of you are old enough to remember the 80s and um, the great age of televangelists, but, you know, all these people, you know, using their positions as, as ministers um, to advance their own wealth and material possessions, you know, that they can drive um, a Cadillac and live in a mansion and um, wear these fine clothes. Um, and that is the real heart of, of what's driving their participation and not um, pursuit of the gospel. Yeah, Teresa. Yeah, that, as we think about, and uh, again, I want us to, after we move on from the false teachers, to think about these questions of wealth, um, that, you know, what a, a minister should, should seek is contentment or, you know, um, the basics of life and to be content. If they've got food and shelter, and the word for clothing um, they at the ESV translates clothing here. It's, it's literally covering, um, and covering can refer to both, you know, the cl clothes that immediately cover your body, and it also can refer to the fact that, like, we're covered by a roof right now. So um, it, can, it can be, I think the word expresses a little more than, than clothing. But that um, our satisfaction, our contentment, um, again, uh, is in making sure we have our basic necessities are met. Because what's the purpose of amassing a bunch of other things? Because <laughs> we came into the world with nothing. And, like, what do we need as babies? You know, we need to be fed. <laughs> and we need to be clothed and sheltered. And beyond that, <laughs> we don't really need a lot of other stuff. <laughs> um, and when we die, you know, what's the, you know, you, despite the ancient Egyptians' attempts to pack rooms full of wealth and, and other civilizations, yeah, 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 that stuff is not going with you. <laughs> um, it gets looted by other people later on, um, you know, or found by archaeologists and shows up in a museum. Like, you, you know, when you die, that stuff, uh, even though you might attempt to take it with you, um, you're going out of this world with nothing. So, you know, as we think about our relationship to material possessions, to keep them in, in place. And again, it's, it's not that Paul's despising material things. Um, he, he's trying to emphasize the material things are secondary to what, what the important thing is, what the lasting thing is. And these people um, are, are being... Um, 
identified by why are they participating in this gospel ministry. Um, they're doing it for the purpose of gaining wealth and riches um, from a community that, just as we saw last week, were instructed to provide, you know, to honor, to doubly honor, those ministers who are preaching the word to them. So, you know, the communities that being instructed to support their pastors, and now you have these other people kind of coming in going, you know, <laughs> here's an opportunity to, to, to get something uh, for nothing, um, to not do the actual work, but to take the position in order to get the financial gain. Other things about the false teachers before we switch a little? Um, just to, to um, I started to touch on this, but to go ahead and move into it. So last week we saw how the church was instructed to doubly honor those elders dedicated to teaching and preaching, which in our discussion um, we mentioned how that um, included providing some kind of uh, material recompense for their worthy gospel labors, that idea in chapter five that the, the laborer deserves his wages and that this wager, this labor of proclaiming the gospel is a worthy calling, a worthy labor. So how do we hold these two things together? You know, that the church is supposed to provide for the material needs of those who minister in it, and yet the ministers shouldn't be doing it um, for financial gain. <laughs> so, yeah, how do we hold those two kind of principles um, together? How do we... Yeah, how do we hold, you know, so we're supposed to have ministers who aren't in doing this for money, but we're supposed to provide them money. <laughs> um, yeah, Ronnie. Yeah, and, and the first word you use there, humility. So the church is to be humble and to, to sacrifice to make sure that this person who is doing the worthy task of proclaiming the gospel is provided for, that their needs are met. Um, so, but on the flip side, the, the minister should be humble that you know, his first desire is to preach this gospel and proclaim this word, whether he's compensated or not. You know, his, he's, he's not worried about whether he's going to be recompensed or gain material through this. His calling is to preach the word, and that is, should be his motivation, and he should you know, humbly trust in God that his, if he's doing that, his needs are met. So, it, so we can almost look at it you know, this instruction for both parties to humble themselves to the extent the minister sh shouldn't be in a position where he has to ask or demand of things because the church is making sure that he's clothed and, and sheltered and fed, um, that his, you know, and that the minister should be content with what he has regardless of his, his um, outward circumstances. Um, so as we think about it, it's the instructions to both halves um, are to fit together in this relationship. Um, and as you say, you know, we should examine the, the minister, what are his true motives, you know, what are his true motives? Um, and if the, um, uh, and it's the situation where the church should look after the needs of the pastor um, to the extent that he shouldn't ever have to make any demands about for this or that or that other thing that and should be content with having the necessities of life other ways we hold these two 
things together. And so I think that, that, that emphasis on humility is really important. Um, maybe we can come back to this question when we talk about riches some more. So what makes the desire for riches so bad? Um, or another way to think of it is he both condemns in this chapter the, um, the desire to be rich, but he gives instructions for how wealthy Christians should behave. So, you know, again, sort of how we hold these things together. Um, is money the root of all kinds of evil, or are riches something God provides? Um, you know, how do we put those two things together? Yeah, so, and it's that fundamental question of desire or, um, or love. You know, where does your, your love reside? Um, and as we think about it, it's this kind of, it's a first level choice. You know, is your desire for material things or is it for God? You know, you know think of the first commandment, you know, um, love your God, <laughs> Lord your God, you know, um, you know, there's one God, you and you're supposed to, um, to love and obey him. Um, and you can either do that, or your desire is, is love for these material things. And notice the sense of progression, you know, that's here. That, um, you know, those who desire to be rich, so, you know, they have their, their hearts, their minds set on those material possessions, on those, those things, and it's almost like, you know, um, the blinders are on so that they don't, um, they're, they're single-mindedly focused on these things. And so they um, fall into temptation, um, into a snare. So, you know, like they're, uh, you know, like, again, you can think of all those kinds of movies where a person is so focused on, like, the golden object at the end of the room that they miss all the booby traps in between themselves and the golden object, you know. <laughs> so they, you know, they fall into these traps and snares. They're so focused on single-minded desire that it leads them into these traps. Um, and then these many sinful, senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. It's like, you know, they're, they're accumulating all these, you know, things that are really, rather than lifting them up um, to some kind of material state they're trying to achieve, is really pulling them down into destruction. Um, uh, I, I think I've mentioned to you, I love the Patrick O'Brien novels about um, the, you know, it's about a British sea captain and his doctor friend during the uh, Napoleonic Wars. But one of the uh, kind of minor characters is this French spy who's been in England and has, as a spy, has amassed tremendous amount of wealth. And now the war's over and he's going back to France. And he's, he's literally, you know, has all this ill-gotten gold, you know, and secret pockets all around his body. Um, and he's stepping onto the boat and he missteps and so, <laughs> And so all his ill-gotten gain suddenly drags him straight to the bottom. And it's that idea here that, you know, this desire for, for wealth, um, you know, and, you know, this desire that, that, you know, puts aside, you know, other considerations um, becomes, you know, this temptation, this snare that drags the person to their utter destruction rather than giving them the peace and security that they think material possessions will actually bring. Good. What else um, about riches? So, um, you know, part of the evil here is it's the, the desire for those riches, you know, where one places them, that you're setting your heart on riches rather than setting your heart on 
the, the great gains um, that come through godliness. What else um, would you say this passage emphasizes about riches? Yeah, Bill. Yeah, and as we think about, you know, again, it's, um, uh, I love that, that language of deposit there. Um, and this, and he comes back to it, to later, you know, the idea of storing up a treasure for themselves, um, you know, and a different sort of treasure. You know, the, the way that um, Christ talks about in, in Matthew chapter 6, you know, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Um, so rather than seeking after these material things to, to guard this, this deposit, you know, um, and it is, um, uh, it's, uh, the, the word here does reflect the kind of like if someone gave you, you know, funds entrusting to you, like a deposit, like, you know, that you're supposed to protect what they've given to you, to, to hold in trust. Um, and, but in this case, what we're holding in trust um, is this, um, you know, this, this faith, um, you know, taking hold of the eternal life to which you are called. Um, you know, that's where the real, um, you know, deposit of faith lies. You know, it's this um, spiritual gain that we have in the gospel, um, not the material things of this life. Yeah, and you know, again, it's the idea that, you know, as Teresa said earlier, you're coming into this world with nothing and you're going to go out of it with nothing. Um, and so your concern um, in this life should be with, you know, guarding the deposit of faith that you've received that brings eternal life. Um, and it, there's this great doxology, you know, smacked dab in the middle of these teaching of riches, you know, like, you know, where our desire should be, you know, the charge. Um, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from approach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that should be what we're longing for, that appearing of, of Christ, to be in his presence, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in approachable, unapproachable light, whom no other has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. So in contrast to these material things, um, you know, our desire should be um, for this God who has, you know, all authority, who has immortal life, who is this unapproachable light of holiness that we can't uh, come into the presence to. Um, and our hope is in the promise that we will be able to stand in the presence of this unapproachable God because of Christ holding to this confession. You know, he being a faithful witness before Pilate that he lived a life of perfect righteousness that allows us to stand before God clothed in Christ's righteousness. So there, yeah, so it's this contrast between where your desire is. You know, is your desire for, for money, for, for material things? Um, you know, uh, this craving after stuff, or is it for God? And the things, you know, you might have them, you might not, but you learn to be content with plenty, or you learn to be content with want. You know, the, the antidote is, is contentment. Um, you know, to um, this, this 
um, spiritual acquiescence to one's outward circumstances. Uh, as one person said it, um, let's see if I can find where I put it, um, uh, they must not be high-minded but humble. They must not have their hope set on the uncertainty of riches. Um, the basis of this, again, is that we freely submit to and delight in God's wise and fatherly disposal um, in every situation. Uh, you know, that's what contentment is. And that's what we should desire, not stuff. So what about the flip side? So, all right, the desire for riches, you know, is, is pretty strongly condemned here. You know, it's the root of all sorts of evils. Um, but what about how we're instructed to, if we have riches? Um, you know, how, how are we, what's our attitude toward those things supposed to be? Okay, so share is one of them that, um, uh, to be generous and ready to share, um, not to selfishly cling to these things. Again, using the idea of Christ. You know, he didn't think glory with God, something to be selfishly clung to, um, but humbled himself, you know, relinquished that external, um, external appearance of glory for the sake of serving other people. And that's our model. So to not selfishly cling to... to the possessions, food, home that we have, but be willing and ready to share it with others. Good. How else are we um, instructed concerning riches? Yeah, to to they are to do good, to be rich in good works. So again, it's to not um, see the possessions as an end in themselves, but as a means to do something, um, to, to acquire something really good. Um, you know, and again, it's the difference between gathering stuff to selfishly cling to it, or to see those things as this material blessing that God has given you. Uh, again, this, this attitude of humility that um, and, and often our, our culture does this, you know, to be, the, you know, wealthier people are better than other people. Like, they deserve better treatment, um, the, the better treatment their money can provide for them. And what Paul's instructing here is not to be haughty, not to set your hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but to instead be rich in doing good with the things that God has given you um, to set your hope not on on your possessions that's that's what you're trusting in but you're trusting in God um, and if you trust in God then then that gives you the ability to um, to share without worrying about well what happens if I run out <laughs> or will there be enough left over for for me you know if your hope is set on God then you don't have to you know, worry about, you know, hoarding for yourself. Yeah, and, and, you know, it's the way, Teresa, our culture emphasizes the individual and material things. <laughs> um, and to sort of, you know, we couple this thing, that the individual amasses as much material stuff in this life as one could get. Rather than having this community sense to sort of think that a person has obligations outside of themselves. Um, and, you know, to sort of, in this case, 
that their family goes beyond their immediate heirs, but you know they're part of this community of faith um, that they are to you know help provide for widows, help to provide for the elderly, help provide for those who are unable to provide for themselves, um, because uh, again that they see their their good is not being their self-interest, but the interest of, of, of God and God's community. Um, so it both, this, this message goes both against our current, um, you know, to speak of North America, you know, our current, you know, emphasis on individualism, you know, what's best for me <laughs> um, as the basis of our decision-making, and our culture's um, emphasis on material things, like, you know, what, how can I get the most and best stuff that I can? Um, and it doesn't, you know, again, when you set that as your desire, um, that, that becomes your end, then, you know, you, it leaves yourself open to all these other kind of sinful means to get to that end. And that is a, you know, you're right, it really is a good diagnosis of where we are as a culture, and I, I was thinking about this um, in terms of it's the way um, as we move farther away from from the gospel's influence in our nation that this is going to become even worse. Um, you know, the, even though we, you know, um, you know, we've got Bernie telling us, you know, that we should turn to socialism, kind of thing, um, but the reality is. Um, we still have people, you know, amassing more wealth faster than any civilization <laughs> um, prior, um, you know, and and that's going to continue because that is our the epitome of our culture's instructions to people. It goes against what our culture tells people to do with their their things, you know, to the extent we're we're so reticent to share that you know we, we're having to come up with some kind of other external force to force us to share and to be more open with our possessions because that's where our culture is good other things um, that come out so this instruction to for for riches that that they're not to be what our desire is but if we're to have them we're to use them for um, you know, to do good works, to sort of see them as not as an end that we should desire, that that's where we put our hopes. But if we do have them, to use them as a means um, to, to, again, to advance not our own interests, not our self-interest, but to um, advance the interest of God's um, household of faith, um, to advance um, the, the extension of the gospel rather than our own desires um, and, and seeking our own ends. Other things um, strike you about Paul's um, instructions to Timothy concerning riches? So notice that, you know, it's, uh, it's really practical on one level, like, you know, the church is supposed to take care of its pastor to the extent where his needs are met, but pastors aren't supposed to be that's not why they're in the pastoral ministry. Like, you know, uh, they're in it to proclaim the gospel. And so if their desire, you know, one of the signs of a false teacher is their desire is on material gain rather than on advancing the, the kingdom of God. Um, so it's, it's the way that he's using what false teachers are doing as the basis to, to give us some instruction about, well, you know, where your desire is, that's where your heart is also. And so if you're setting your desire on these material possessions, then, uh, then there's a real question of, of where your heart is. You're setting a love above your love of God. So um, one, uh, one final question, I guess. Um, so early in the chapter, Paul condemns those who quarrel over words, 
but he instructs Timothy to fight the good fight. So, um, so in one hand, he's, he's condemning these group of people for being quarrelsome, but then he's telling Timothy to fight. So, again, how do we know the difference between what's harmful squabbling um, and what's necessary struggle to combat um, false doctrine or errors in the church? Yeah, Bill. Yeah, the faith, and the faith there, um, he, he's employing it as, you know, the essence of, of what we, you know, the core of what we believe. Um, there was a good um, uh, article in First Things recently, like, you know, sort of to use the Apostles' Creed to sort of identify um, what we don't believe. <laughs> um, like, we, you know, when we stand up and say the Apostles' Creed, you know, you know, you know Christian, what do you believe? Um, and this person wrote an article about, well, it also identifies what we don't believe, <laughs> you know, that, you know, by believing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, you know, we're saying that he's not merely a man, you know, so we're, you know, it's, you know, by affirming the faith, we're also affirming what's, what's not part of the faith. By affirming that he became man and, a, you know, that he was born of, uh, you know, born of the Virgin Mary, you know, we're asserting he was a real person in a real place and time. So, you know, all these things about, well, you know, he's just kind of a mythical person that the church made up, or, you know, we don't really know what the circumstance of his life. No. <laughs> we affirm, you know, part of what we say when we say we believe, you know, he was born of a virgin, he was a real, actual person. So, you know, he's both truly God and truly man. And so, yeah, so as we think about um, what, what, what we fight over um, or what's worthy to fight the good fight about, matters of the faith. You know, that is where our attention should be, the, the things that matter. Yeah, that, so it's, you know, what we argue about. So rather than squabbling over, you know, like he, as he says in chapter one, you know, speculations about genealogies and, you know, these kinds of um, how many angels fit on a pen kind of things. Like, you know, so, no, that, that's not worth fighting about. You know, it, substantive matters. And then how you contend. So it's, it's both what you know, you're fighting for, what's worthy of, of squabbling over or struggling over, well, the faith, um, and then how you do it, that you do it in a means that promotes peace and godliness rather than um, do it in, in means, with these means that are, again, destructive or self-motivated, that you're thinking about the, you know, I'm telling you this, not, again, so I can win the argument um, and prove myself right, but I'm winning this because this is something, you know, that's necessary for you to, to, to know. You're in serious danger. You know, it's concern for the other person. Um, and, you know, you're seeking to bring about 
um, healing rather than division. You know, you're seeking to bring about a cure rather than sever a limb. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's a, yeah, it's the means by which um, is, is what differentiates between quarrelsome squabbles and a, a godly fighting for the faith. Good. Anything else we want to say about what distinguishes these two things? Um, I mean, yeah. Yeah, you're fighting for, not for the sake of fighting, you know, you're not struggling or contending for the sake of, of contention, but you're doing it for the person, you know, you're doing it for the, the, the glory of God, you know, that's your concern, your concern's not about winning the argument, and you really see that, you know, um, one of the things that's contrasted in this last chapter of, of Timothy is the, the different fruits, you know, as we saw earlier, he has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce. You know, what are the effects of that kind of quarrelsome um, uh, disputing? Envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, constant friction among people. Um, you know, versus fight the good fight of the faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you are called. You know, it's a very different kind of end. Um, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. It's a very different set of results um, that are being pursued and come about through fighting the good fight of the faith versus, you know, these kind of contentious squabbling. So, you know, the, the purpose is, is for the contentions different or the purpose for the struggle is different. Um, the content or what you're struggling about is different. And the results, you know, are produced, you know, is it producing a community that is growing in godliness or is it producing this kind of toxic community where everybody's in, I love that idea of constant friction. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, everybody is rubbing everyone else the wrong way. <laughs> um, and... You know, what is the result uh, of the teaching? Um, and it, it gets down, again, to one of the, the primary messages that run through the entirety of the book is the need for humility, you know. And to, to put one's self-interest aside in, um, in, in exchange for giving of oneself to other people, you know, to put the other person's interest uh, uh, above your own, which is what you're saying, you know, put on the <laughs> pot of coffee and keep talking like, you know, you might have other things you want to do, but you're putting those things in, aside for the sake of the other person. And that's, that is this, um, as we think about what, um, what qualities or traits 
um, a pastor should have, you know, that that's, um, distinguishes itself from these false pastors is this kind of humility um, where the person is willing to give of themselves um, to in service to others um, and to do so in a way for the sake of the, the growth and extension of the promotion of the gospel rather than the promotion of their own material ends or their own, um, their own ego's sake. All right, well, good. Uh, we're at our time, so I'll close us here. So, so this brings our, our study of 1 Timothy to close, where we're going to pick up in the pastoral epistles next week. Um, we're not going to go to 2 Timothy. We're going to go to Titus. Um, I know, I'm going out of New Testament order. <laughs> we're, I'm doing it because Titus and 1 Timothy seem to be written right around the same time, so I'm going in chronological order because, you know, I'm a historian and that's what I do. Um, <laughs> but uh, we'll come back to, to um, Paul and Timothy's relationship um, in a few weeks, but we're going to take an, uh, uh, a step into Paul and Titus uh, for the next few weeks. Um, so that's where we're heading next, just to give you a preview. Well, let me close this in prayer. Gracious God, we thank you for... Um, your sending of your son, Jesus Christ, um, to take on the humble life of a, a human being and not just a human being, um, one who came um, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And he uh, establishes for us how we should live, that we should um, not be seeking after ourselves and our own gain, but seeking after um, others' good, um, to seek to, to use the gifts you give us to do good works, to seek um, your glory and not our own. Um, we thank you for Christ, that he covers our, our sin, um, even our sin of covetousness and avarice, um, but he gives us a new heart and new desires, um, and part of that is a desire to be in your presence, um, to, to come into your glorious presence and to worship you and give us a taste of that eternal hope even in this coming hour as we gather as a community to worship you in spirit and truth. We ask these things in Christ's name by the power of your spirit. Amen.